Brick Moon Fiction presents It's Our Come Round at Last by Eric Del Carlo Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The very old man had, nearing his ending, taken to buying up churches. Some of these were failing properties, poorly placed and poorly zoned. All of them were ruins. Not a holy house in all the land was maintained with any dignity. Dignity cost money. It required commitment. Religion was insolvent. Decades ago, the last ragged priestly crows had deconsecrated the various grounds and fled. The plots held crumbled reminders. Many were bulldozed. Many were recast as lucrative institutions. The very old man bought the ones left standing, the true relics. But even those which were eyesores in profitable neighborhoods he allowed to abide. These were rotting skeletons propped up amidst dinner-party crowds. It was something more than strange behavior. The old man was Raphael Eustace, as hardened a creature of finance as could be found. People imagined this eccentric interest, manifesting itself late in his life, to have some ulterior meaning. Surely he was pulling some final ruse, a last financial loop-the-loop which would net him a vast, unneeded profit. Other people, those nearer the old man, thought him failing, knot-knuckled senility squeezing his mind in a frail but determined grip. Ricky Eustace only learned of his father's obsession with churches after the very old man had died. Ricky wasn't easy to find, as he didn't want to be found, not by the police, not by former friends, certainly not by anybody connected with his family. He was the second of three children, born into a clan of such wealth that his name held the weight of a corporate brand. He had been the wayward one, bracketed by siblings far more interested in the family's financial doings. His younger sister had a mind set for razor-fine calculation, for revenue estimates and belligerent corporate strategies. Kelly saw everything as opportunity, and opportunity meant only advantage and advancement. Barry was the eldest and had carried himself as the anointed child since Ricky's earliest memories. Barry was something more than the heir apparent. He was the epitome of the Eustace philosophy of acquisition, of rapacity, of the need everlasting to gain and gain, to add profit to profit. He embodied something greater than greed. There was, for him, no base pleasure in accumulation. It was no clumsy substitute for love or sex. It was an all-consuming ideology. The family's riches were a state of mind, a state of grace. The two events rocked the grand Eustace estate, the traditional and original seat of the family, endless grounds and magnificent glowering stone constructions. The two overlapping events were, of course, the arrival home of the very old and soon-to-be-dead man's middle son, Ricky Eustace, and the death of Raphael Eustace one night later from a final inevitable failure of his heart. A phalanx of legal personnel were also on hand, there was an old-fashioned reading of the will, slated. Ricky had scrubbed away the grime. The surface grime, anyway. He had been off the grid for some while, and that entailed a lot of rough living. He'd worn hobo cast-offs and eaten out of dumpsters. He didn't apologize, not to himself or anyone else, for this lifestyle. It had been the only way to get out from under the prearranged weight of his life. But a person picked up a lot of grime that way. Worse, when one witnessed, up close and very personal, what a greedy society did to its dropouts and discards, that grime got into the workings and gears of one's soul. 
Ricky Eustace had seen and experienced too much to ever believe that wealth was a benign force or poverty a just punishment. They had come and collected him when father was almost gone, which made Ricky suspect, to his chagrin, that the family could have reached out for him any time they pleased. He had come in without any unnecessary fuss. It wouldn't have done to fuss with the faceless mercenary strong arms in their neutral suits that were sent after him. He was bathed and shaven and put into presentable clothes, and he had a few bedside minutes with the old man, who seemed to recognize him. A few croaky whispers accompanied the scene in the lavish death room. Ricky thought the odd, scarcely connected words sounded instructive. Something about martyrdom. Something about revolution. He hadn't understood what, if anything, father was trying to tell him before he died. But the last words stayed with Ricky, even now, with the ridiculous distraction of the disposition of the Eustace fortune still to attend to. Barry and Kelly stood outside the large oak doors. The platoon of lawyerly types was already inside the cavernous study. Ricky looked from his older brother to younger sister and back, and finally laughed. Is there something funny here? Kelly asked. She didn't speak reprovingly. It was like she couldn't immediately identify what laughter meant and wanted to quantify it so as to assess its profit potential. Her features were sharp, her bearing severe. Yes, Ricky, share the joke. Barry spoke easily, in a confident cadence, as if language were a product he'd had market-tested. He wore clothes and accessories worth tens of thousands of dollars with casual aplomb. Here, certainly, was the face of Eustace, the one to go before the cameras, the charmer, the seducer. He would make the whole corporate conglomerate seem human and inevitable, the way Raphael Eustace in his heyday had been charismatic and persuasive. Ricky let his chuckling play out. He had eaten hot food and slept the night in a bed. He said, You two look exactly like you're supposed to. Ricky hadn't seen either sibling in five years. Now he guessed he would see Barry's face on TV from time to time and know that Kelly was working in the wings for him, keeping order, zeroing in on the next kill. There was always vulnerable money out there, and his sister wanted every cent of it for the family. I wouldn't say the same for you, Barry said, eyes sweeping Ricky's clothes and tidied appearance. But supposed to never meant much to you, did it? You never cared about your responsibilities. You ran away. Cowardice. Kelly said with a robotic finality. Ricky might have laughed again just then, but he didn't know if he'd be able to stop this time. These two creatures were alien to him, absurd and preposterous, even as they represented vast wealth and power. Living on the street wasn't a coward's undertaking. They stood a moment longer before the oak doors. Then it was time to go in, to hear the will read. All the churches stood ruined because the lifeblood of religion had simply run dry. Cultural tides turned, they ebbed, changed pattern entirely, and left deserts behind them. The beliefs had become inane. The trust placed in ancient, poorly organized texts had started to feel misplaced by greater and greater swaths of the population. It was like outgrowing a youthful mania for a band or a role-playing game. The houses of worship were curiosities slotted into archaic niches of property law, immune to the normal procedures of teardown and renewal, yet vulnerable to the purchasing power of the immense Eustace fortune. Father's fixation on churches made no sense to Barry, but the eldest son had endured the purchases of these fallow properties. The old man had taken them, 
and he had a plan for them, but no one was to know it but his second offspring, the maverick of the bunch. It was a plan with no guarantee of success, relying as it did on the character and metal of that wayward son. Never! It was a gothic scream. The two dismayed syllables should have been shrieked from atop a lonely outcropping of rock above a moor with black and white clouds whipping past overhead. It was the cry of the jilted lover who would soon take a life, not necessarily his own. A melodramatic primal screech of pure stubborn defiance. Ricky hardly recognized his brother's voice in that bellow. Certainly Barry's twisted, reddened features were nothing like the usual collected mean he presented the world. Never, Kelly echoed, but her tone had shrunk, with barely any breath to push the word past her lips. Barry had leapt savagely to his feet, legs splayed, hands out like claws. His leather-winged chair had tumbled over behind him. The lawyers sat in a row behind the study's long table, impassive, having delivered their news without hint of feeling. Raphael Eustace's last will and testament had left no room for doubt. He had bequeathed the family fortune to his middle child. The entire empire was Ricky's. Ricky had, of course, heard the words and understood the basic grammar holding the sentences together. But the meaning, the deep-rooted significance, would not take hold. He had inherited the wealth? He owned the corporations? He? No. No, don't be ridiculous. So Ricky laughed and it was the runaway laughter he had feared earlier. Days ago he had been sleeping in an alley and fighting rats for scraps. Barry turned at the sound of that vulgar, peeling laughter. His teeth bared. He coiled and sprang at his younger brother and was only held off by the lawyers who acted so immediately they must have rehearsed the maneuver, or at least discussed it at length. They prevented Barry from tearing Ricky asunder. Kelly did nothing, only sat and watched and waited. Surely this wasn't the end of the matter. Surely the destiny of the Eustace family hadn't fallen solely into the hands of their irresponsible, perverse brother who had turned his back on this wealth long ago. Ricky walked the grounds of the estate. Greens, orchards, those gargoyle buildings, the eternally winding pathways. He could hike for days if he wanted. He could, in fact, do whatever he liked on or with this immense manor. It was his, after all. The ludicrous enormity of the wealth which had fallen to him remained beyond the scope of understanding. It was simply too much. It was like trying to imagine, in real, tactile terms, the distance between galaxies. The mind rebelled. He attempted to focus. The Eustace fortune was one of the largest in the world. It was a seething, self-perpetuating mass of monies, the mechanisms which drove it were an array of corporate holdings and intricate investments. He recalled the dry recitation of the lawyers at the reading of Father's will. Pharmaceutical research and distribution, hydrocarbon exploration, munitions. These and many other ventures kept the fortune alive and metastasizing. It repulsed him. Too much. Just too much. It wasn't merely beyond the range of easy understanding. The basis of such riches eluded him. How could humans have devised a system like this, one meant to separate the comfortable and cared for so completely from the downtrodden and suffering? He had spent so long among the homeless. 
once he had turned his back on the family, on his sacred responsibilities, so his siblings would say. He had never used those connections for anything. Quite the contrary, he hadn't ever let on who he was, hadn't even wanted to be a Eustace. He paused at the edge of a wide, flowing flowerbed. Colors mixed dizzyingly. It made him think of the alcohol he'd drunk, the drugs he'd taken while eking out an existence on city streets. Faces rose among the kaleidoscope of carefully tended blooms. He saw his sad and struggling fellows. Everyone out there had been the product of bad luck, bad decisions, and a social structure which forgave nothing. He thought of the hunger and misery, thought too of the camaraderie and many instances of basic human decency he had witnessed among those poor. He could, he realized with the slow flush of revelation, now do something about all that. Incalculable wealth. Only it was calculable, down to the last decimal place, he controlled the disposition of that money. He could decide how to direct it. He could give the riches new character, a fresh aim and purpose. He could flood social programs with funding. Hell, he was in a position to invent new ones, useful and reliable aids for the discarded multitudes of humanity, the ones who'd lost out to the rigged game. He could change everything. But surely his father would have known his subversive son would come to this very conclusion. Ricky the bleeding heart would want to use the family fortune for good. He would blow it all on helping the needy. Why in hell would father put the wealth in his hands? Raphael Eustace had been a cold-blooded, avaricious bastard. He had lived for accumulation. The fortune could never be big enough. The financial empire's boundaries never reached. What had changed his heart? Why had he, as Ricky had recently learned, spent the last months of his life buying obsolete church properties? And what had his deathbed words meant, those vague croaks about revolution and martyrdom? Ricky didn't know, but he knew what he meant to do with this enormous, grotesque treasure trove to which he'd been given the key. He was not a sophisticated financier. He didn't have the education or patience for the sensible subtleties of moving about great blocks of currency. So things were done bluntly, at his behest. New simple effective social assistance programs sprang suddenly into existence. Overnight, help was available to those who needed it. Housing was being constructed. The new, privately funded institutions offered educational and job training opportunities. The outreach was almost aggressive. Ricky wasn't screwing around. He knew that people who had been living rough too long wouldn't trust any of it, any organized effort. He set out to change minds, to change the whole greedy network. The world had resources enough for everyone. Only greed stood in the way. Ricky Eustace waited to see if he himself would succumb to the family disease. He wondered if he would be changed, warped, contorted out of all moral recognition. Perhaps the profane, childish impulse to take and take and keep and keep for oneself would overtake him. But it didn't. He kept himself too busy, too focused. He suspected, with that same mistrustful instinct of the chronically impoverished, that this wouldn't last forever. He was correct. The Eustace corporations were still operating, even though profits were being rechanneled. Executives still nervously held their positions. Certainly Barry and Kelly were still around. Ricky had made clear they were welcome on the estate or at any of the other family properties, 
several of which were being converted to charitable use. But it wasn't in his siblings' nature to stand idle, and they certainly weren't the kind to shirk what they perceived as a life-and-death struggle. They marshaled their forces, the cunning corporate legal resources, and struck back. Again, this was something wily old Raphael Eustace must have anticipated, yet he'd left his second son to face the pushback. In the end, it wasn't too difficult to take down Ricky Eustace, despite his public popularity as the new face of affluent generosity. He was too vulnerable. His dissolute past had made him so. Lawful mechanisms called into question his competency. They didn't even need to go after the old man's dubious decision to bequeath everything to Ricky. The proceedings were conducted with reason and pretended compassion. Ricky Eustace was portrayed as a man out of his depth, doing wrong things for the right reasons. It was argued, truthfully, that he was dismantling a productive and thriving financial apparatus. His noble efforts, so seemingly authoritative data demonstrated, were in fact bringing much more harm than good to the very people he wished to succor. Ricky called on his own legal teams, the ones who had helped him get the aid programs going, but Barry and Kelly had called the shrewdest ones, the sharks. They devoured Ricky's defense. The middle Eustace offspring was divested of his powers, his position, his ability to ransack the family treasure chest. Because his older brother and younger sister were also monstrous people bent on vengeance, they ejected Ricky entirely, cast him out. He would never be allowed onto the estate, never be able to touch a cent of the fortune. Even that wasn't enough for his siblings. They had the faceless family mercenaries in their neutral suits go after him and beat him and drop him in the gutter. He wandered in a daze. He healed in slow, painful increments, but the healing wasn't entire. His face was left battered, his bearing unsteady. He stayed to the low places, the city wastelands. He lived as he'd lived before, on crumbs, suffering the privations of the discarded. One misty night, he heard a bell. It tolled in a decrepit neighborhood, and he squinted and searched and finally saw the curious skeletal structure, distinct even from the surrounding urban decay. He hobbled forward. The bell went silent when he touched the rotting front door, pasted with no trespassing notices. He expected to find it locked, but the door groaned wide enough for him to enter the moldy grotto beyond. There was light here, candlelight, and movement, people, a homeless encampment, maybe a mobile soup kitchen, though such charities he'd found these past weeks were scarcer than they had ever been. Certainly all the charitable outlets he had launched had closed up shop and vanished, like the wisps of impossible dreaming. Shapes and shadows came between him and the candles, which were spread throughout the musty, vaulting ruin. Ricky found himself encircled, he tried to show a benign expression on his damaged features. He held out empty hands from his bent body. I mean no harm, he croaked, sounding much like his father had on his opulent deathbed. It was also what he had said repeatedly during his competency hearings. Too bad, a shadowed form said. We do. Ricky tensed for an assault, but it didn't come. Instead, gentle but firm hands reached for him, and he was led further into the structure. It was, he finally saw, a church. No one had reconsecrated the place, however. No one read stilted passages from an obsolete volume. 
There were no clerics in crow-black costumes presiding over abstracts and invented sins. A sign was hung over what Ricky recognized as the altar. Cardboard, simple words drawn on it. The one deadly sin. Greed. Ricky grinned a bit dazedly. There were women, men, and children here. Also a sense of organization, of purpose. A long metal chest was dragged out from beneath a splintered pew. Someone threw open the lid. Someone else lifted out one of the weapons. It looked like an assault rifle to Ricky, a serious piece of hardware, like what his family was invested in. Firearms were good business. Where'd you get these? Ricky asked. Somebody handed him a cup of coffee. He smelled soup or stew from a nearby pot. The person who'd first spoken to him leaned a half-step forward. The candlelit face was toughened, the cast of the eyes resolute. They all looked like this one, people who had seen their chance at a better life snatched away when Ricky had been brought down. This person said, Not all the money you poured out went to affordable housing. Some in those organizations you founded saw how things might go, and made some practical contingency purchases. Call them investments, Mr. Eustace. The churches. Were they all like this? He asked. They were. Organized. Armed. Ready. Awaiting only the new leader. The battered, grimy, martyr savior. He was to be, then, Yeats's rough beast slouching toward Bethlehem. It's our come round and all that. He would head a new religion an anti-religion. There was only one commandment to go with its single sin. Destroy all greed. It didn't matter, finally, what had changed Raphael Eustace's heart toward the end of his life. The very old man had put a far-seeing plan into motion, leaving the rest to fate and faith. Ricky spoke a few silent words to his absent father. Perhaps the words were even a prayer. Then assumed his rightful place before his believers. Eric Del Carlo has been compulsively, convulsively, and propulsively writing fiction for the vast majority of his lifetime. His successes include appearances in such world-renowned science fiction publications as Analog, Asimov's, and Clark's World. The anthologies he's appeared in are beginning to crowd his bookshelf. His novels range from sword and sorcery, like War Torn, written with Robert Asprin, to urban fantasy, like The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, to his young adult title, The Vampire Years. He's written podcasts for Earbud Theater, had his novels released as Russian editions, written scads of erotica, and seen his fiction chosen for a year's best anthology. He writes because he doesn't know how to stop, and because he's determined to carve out every last worthy word he can while he still walks this world. Also, he's eager to know you, so contact him via Facebook. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.